Morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. And it's really a privilege for us to be here, me and my family, this morning. Also here from Capitol Hill Baptist Church is uh, one of our interns, William Cottonoir. And so you can say hi to him afterwards. Greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, especially all of you that previously were members there. Uh, Pastor Mark and the elders, everyone sends their greetings and says hello to you. They made sure to make sure that I said that to you guys this morning. So, uh, so glad to see you. And congrats on five years. Happy birthday. That's really exciting. And God has been so good and so faithful to sustain you guys here, and he will continue to do so. As we begin this morning, let me ask you this question. Have you ever built something that will far outlast your life? Have you ever built something that will far outlast your life? The Basilica of the Holy Family in Barcelona, Spain is like, unlike any other building in the world. If you, if you look at it from a distance, the cathedral's famous nativity facade looks like a supersized kind of drippy sandcastle. But a closer inspection reveals an ornately sculpted set of towers that have been described as the Bible written in stone. The architect, the architect of La Basilica de la Sagrada Familia was the eccentric Catalan genius named Antony Gaudi. And Gaudi received the commission to build this basilica at the young age of 31, devoting his entire life to this grand building project, never marrying, often sleeping at the construction site. While taking little care for his appearance, he wore frayed clothing and was often confused around town in Barcelona uh, for a beggar. Gaudi worked tirelessly until he was struck and he was killed tragically by a streetcar at age 73. And upon his death, only the facade of the basilica was completed and the rest of the ambitious project existed only in Gaudi's complex architectural drawings and kind of scaled plaster models. But sadly, most of these priceless models and drawings were destroyed in a war by anarchists 10 years after his death. And so the basilica was left uncompleted even until this day. All of us are laboring to build something with our lives, are we not? Which begs the question, is what you are building worthwhile? The passage we're looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians 3, is all about being wise in how you build. So turn there to 1 Corinthians 3. On uh, the Pew Bible, it's page 953. And as you turn there, for context, let me just read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 3 before we settle into verses 10 through 17 for our time in God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians 3.1 says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Paul? Excuse me. 
What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed and the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, I, like a skilled master builder, laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let each one's work Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, as though he himself will be saved, but as only through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God. Here in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this letter from Ephesus to this young church in Corinth. Because the work of the ministry at this point in time, in this church's history, it got a little sidetracked. We know from Acts 18 that Paul had supported the founding of this church uh, with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and he lived among them uh, for 18 months, uh, between 52 and 53 AD, for a year and a half before moving on to Ephesus with that same couple. And now in the absence of these foundational leaders, this Corinthian church finds Satan actually in their midst. And he was seeking to do what he always does, which is to to divide and to distract and uh, sadly, oftentimes, to destroy. And Paul, hearing these divisions from a distance, he felt the need to write them in order to remind them of the centrality of Christ over all of who they are and all of what they do together as a local church. And in this chapter, Paul employs a variety of metaphors to get his point across to these brothers and sisters in Corinth. Did you see them when we first read through the text together? A a plethora of of metaphors, honestly. In chapter uh, 3, verse 1, you can see there, Paul calls them infants in Christ. He uses a developmental sort of metaphor. Then in verses 1 through 3, we see uh, Paul describe them as people of the flesh, right? An anatomical metaphor, one could say. And then he speaks in verse 2, uh, about feeding them with milk and, uh, 
and encouraging them to get to the place of solid food, right? Not just milk, but meat. And here he uses a gastronomical metaphor. And then in verse 6, you can see it there. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. He uses an agricultural metaphor, right? He, he speaks of this church as God's field. It's a really beautiful picture. But then in verse 9, he shifts one last time to a metaphor that he uses, uh, an architectural metaphor, as he calls them God's building, right? A, a grand edifice, even a temple in verses 16 and 17. And in all of these metaphors, Paul's calling the Corinthians into more wisdom in how they are to grow into more maturity, how they are to serve with more humility, how they're to be wise in how they plant in more quantity and quality, right? And in that last metaphor, this architectural metaphor, in verses 10 through 17, that's what we're going to focus on in our time here, okay? So again, have you ever built something that far outlasts your life. Look again at verse 10. The admonition is that each one should take care in how he built, and that's what we want to focus on today. First, we'll focus on the foundation, and then we'll look at the building. And if we desire to take care to be wise in how we build, then we first have to identify where. Where should we be building in the first place? So I was in my office this last week, and I jotted these four things down. Four areas where every Christian should be building. Not an exhaustive list, of course, but just four of maybe the, the primary places where every Christian should be building. First and foremost, as a follower of Jesus Christ, should be your personal growth. You should be building into your life, right? Your walk with Jesus, your growth in sanctification, right? Your spiritual disciplines personally. Secondly, how about your family, right? Um, if you're married with your spouse, uh, if you're married and you have children uh, with your kids, um, if you perhaps have grandkids, kind of building into their life as well, right? If you happen to not be married, what about your parents, your siblings, your roommates, those that are kind of in proximity to you? Think about those that are in your family. Another area where every Christian should be building, not only personal growth and family, but just general relationships, right? Christians should be the greatest hosts on the planet, right? We should always be outgoing and seeing uh, to bring people in uh, as a host and not necessarily as a guest. And I think it should be that way in our relationships as well, with our unbelieving neighbors, with coworkers, with acquaintances, right? And remember this, your proximity dictates your responsibility to that person. You perhaps can't reach out to people that you can, right? I can't reach people in Chevrolet like you can because we live down on Capitol Hill, and you perhaps can't meet people at Capitol Hill if you're not down there all that often. Proximity dictates responsibility. A fourth area in which every Christian should be building is, of course, their church. The brothers and sisters that are sitting right next to you, right? The people that you have covenanted with together as a covenant community. First, you have to lay a foundation down in order to properly build something up. Look at verse 11 again. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So let's start here in the first of four main points uh, this morning. The first one is this, build on the right man. Build on the right man, verse 11. Some verses in the Bible are just like crystal clear, aren't they? This is one of them right here in verse 11. Our foundation for everything 
is Jesus Christ. Amen? Always and only Jesus Christ. He is truly the only reliable foundation we can and we should be building our lives upon. And this is the foundation that Paul laid for the Corinthians when he was there with them in Corinth. No matter where Paul found himself in the ancient Near Eastern world, wherever he was going, he laid that same foundation that you see there in verse 11. Paul's kind of like the concrete guy, right? With the boots and the hard hat, right? And he's like backing up that huge concrete mixing truck. And wherever he's going, he's trying to pour out constantly the reality of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You happen to walk past the job site in Corinth and you're like, Paul, what are you building, man? And he's like, I'm pouring the same foundation that I poured everywhere else I went and everywhere else that I'm about to go. What's in the mixer? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 23, Paul preached Christ crucified. If you look again, just in these uh, two first chapters, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul exclaims that he knew nothing except Christ crucified. And by my count, Paul mentions here the, the, the name Jesus or Christ or the Lord or the Lord Jesus Christ over 20 times in this letter just in chapter 1 and 2 alone. So Paul is all about building on the right man. And figuratively, you could say that Paul took pains to lay the foundation of the Corinthian church with the wooden beams of Christ's crucifixion. How is this an example for us? Well, we cannot and we should not build the foundations of our church on a pastor or on a preacher, not on a denomination or a doctrine, not on church's programs or our church's preferences. If the church is going to build a foundation, we need to make sure that we're not building on the foundation that has sifting sands, but rather on the foundation of Christ, who is the solid rock. The church should never be built on a man. We need to build on the man. The man, the righteous man, Christ Jesus. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said it like this, a foundation is indispensable to a building, and so also Christ is indispensable to a true church. In a house, you could do without certain windows. You might close a door. You might remove parts of the roof, and it still might be a house. But you cannot have a house at all if you take away the foundation. And so you cannot have a church of Christ if Jesus Christ is not there as the foundation and as the cornerstone. Now, I don't know if you're like me, if you're like an envious person that's in, that enjoys kind of watching those uh, home renovation shows on HGTV, any envious people in the room here? It's like, oh man, I watch those and it's just like going the tank. Oh, why can't I have a house like that, right? Think about these shows, Fixer Upper, Flipper Flop, Good Bones, Property Brothers, Hometown, Love It or List It. If I'm really desperate, I'll watch Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, right? And what is the one thing that they don't mess with when they do a renovation? The foundation. The foundation. May it always be so here for the saints of Chevrolet Baptist Church. Here's the big idea of this first main point. In order to spiritually build anything up, you have to first lay the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
So think again about those four areas that we just talked about briefly earlier. Is Jesus Christ and him crucified solidly and securely the foundation in each of those four areas in which you are seeking to build? It's fitting to consider the foundation first before we go any further in this passage. And maybe you're here and you're consciously not a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that anything that you do, any work that you may do in seeking to build up something with your own life is a work that is actually a work in vain? Again, in order to build anything up, you have to first lay the foundation of Jesus Christ that has to be at the basis. And because our sin separates us from the God who created us, God the Father sent his son Jesus down in order to save his people from their sin. When the Father sent Jesus down to this earth in the flesh, Jesus laid his life down for us as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus said so himself in John 10, 18. He said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And so Jesus did just that. He laid his life down on a cross, and then he was laid down in a tomb for three days. And with Jesus' sacrificial foundation laid down, God raised him up. And Christ was resurrected, up, and then ascended, up, back to the Father. Fifty days later, God then sent his Holy Spirit down in order that the church would be built up. For that reality, that is why we are all here worshiping Jesus together today. And if you are here and you desire to follow Jesus, you need to lay your sin down by turning from it. And you need to lay your very life down to trust Jesus in order that Christ himself might build you up in faith into who he created you to be. Again, in order to build anything up, you first have to lay the foundation of Jesus Christ down. If you're interested in hearing more about turning from sin, trusting in Christ, you can speak with me or any of the elders that are here or even better, the friend that perhaps brought you here. So first and foremost, build on the right man. Secondly, build with the right materials. Build with the right materials. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 again. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In verses 10 and 11, we just looked back to the past to consider what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And here in verses 12 and 13, we're actually looking ahead, looking ahead to the future fire of that day, that capital D day, right, when Christ will judge. In verse 12, there's actually six building materials that are listed there, and they're listed in descending value. Can you see that in the passage? Interestingly enough, this passage mirrors 1 Chronicles 29.2, which tells us that when Solomon built the temple, he used gold. He used silver. 
he used precious stones. The first of three building materials, uh, gold, silver, precious stones, those things will endure through a fire. But the last three, those last three are easily consumed. And Calvin, commenting on this passage, he said this, it would be absurd to build up cheap materials on a golden foundation. So it is also a wicked thing to bury Christ under other people's superimposed doctrines. Now you can go in your backyard, right? And you can find hay and straw and, uh, and wood just sitting around right in your backyard. It doesn't take any effort at all to find things like that. But if you want gold, if you want silver, if you want precious jewels and precious stones, the reality is, is that you've got to dig for them. You've got to dig for them. And what Paul's saying here is that a careless builder resorts to inferior supplies. What we should be doing is instead be seeking to build with materials that will last until eternity, right? Something that is going to last beyond the fire. So this passage begs the question, what are those things that will last until eternity? Well, outside of a renewed creation in and of itself, Revelation 1.9 tells us that the, really the only two things that are going to last until eternity are the word of God and the testimony of the saints of God, right? The souls of men and women. So then what are good building materials then? Well, good bater- building materials are things like the doctrines that are derived from the word. But then not just the doctrine, but it's also our devotion to the souls of one another, right? Doctrine, devotion, right teaching, right living, a lifestyle of proper worship that builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ. You're here this morning, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're a member of this church, you realize that you have two families, right? You have two families here this morning. You have a biological family, and you have a church family, right? And the reality is, is that we should be building well by worshiping well with right doctrine from the word and uh, also right devotion to one another's souls in these two areas of our biological family and our church family. Think about uh, family worship for a moment. I grew up in a house that was a Christian house, but didn't necessarily ever study the Bible together or look at the Bible or read a Christian book or take some time for like family Bible time like me and my family seek to do. And... Uh, and, and honestly, uh, just by judging by the amount of uh, minivans in the parking lot, there's, there's a lot of families here, right? A lot of kids here. And that is such a blessing. Just a few suggestions for you if you don't know where to start in some of those areas, or perhaps if you can be encouraged to start up again. There's an excellent book by a man named Donald Whitney, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, called Family Worship. Super short little book. And in it, he encourages families to read together and just to pray together and to sing together. Read, pray, sing. You do that in just a few minutes. We're doing that with our girls as we have dinner. Things like the Big Picture Story Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, the New City Catechism. If you have kids that are a little bit older, the Family Worship Bible Guide is a great resource that goes chapter by chapter throughout the whole scripture that can aid you in your family worship, right? But think about corporate worship. How can we build well together by worshiping uh, together in this local church? Well, the Sunday morning service is kind of like a fire in a furnace in the middle of a factory, right? 
And the sad reality is if the fire goes out, the workers get cold, and then no work gets done. And so I praise God that when you guys gather here, when we gather, uh, we're gathering around praying the word. I'm sure you've heard this before. We're gathering around reading the word, right? We're gathering around uh, singing the word, preaching the word, and seeing the word in the ordinances. That is good doctrine and good devotion. If we're going to do the work of building in our church and in our homes, then let's build our homes, our marriages, our families, and our churches with these kinds of materials that last throughout eternity and impact even beyond. Let's pick this uh, text up again in verses 14 and 15. So first, build on the right man. Secondly, build with the right materials. Third, build in the right manner. Build in the right manner. Verse 14 says, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Fire here in verses 14 and 15 is not a fire speaking about uh, punishment. But it's rather talking about purification. It's not about the judgment of Christians, but it is about the judgment of their work. That's why the word work is listed four times in just these few verses. It's not about a judgment of who we are in Christ, but rather a judgment of the work that we have done for Christ. And when the fire of that day comes, that fire is going to purify, but it also will consume. So if you've been justified by Jesus you will not face condemnation on that last day. But you will have your works judged and they will also be rewarded accordingly. The materials of right work will be rewarded. What a great thing it is to hear. But the, but the materials of wrong work, those are just gonna be wiped out. So we should be striving to be the worker described in verse 14 and not the one in verse 15 who essentially is a person that is kind of saved by the skin of their teeth, as it were. And this takes focused intentionality. It takes discipline. It takes a disciplined determination. Many churches in America today are content with cultivating crowds rather than cultivating a covenanted community. Rather than counting Christians, a mentor of mine has often said, perhaps we should instead start weighing them Many families are content to check the boxes of behavior modification on, on behalf of their kids, but never really get to the heart of real transformation in worship with their families. Still others drive only for decisions for Christ in their personal evangelism with no intentionality towards the actual discipleship of the one who just made a decision to follow Christ. But CBC, I am persuaded of better things Concerning you. As Paul closes this letter in 1 Corinthians 15.58, he encourages all of us in this. And Chevrolet Baptist, as you guys begin your fifth year together, may this word be written on your hearts. May it be written on your ministry together in this local church. Uh, may it also be written on your families. Paul says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. So keep on building. Keep on building in the right manner. Be busy in building according to the blueprint of the Bible. And just know that it's okay to get weary in the work. It's not a bad thing to grow weary, but it is a bad thing to to lose heart. Lastly, look at verses uh, 16 and 17 with me. Verse 16 says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You are that temple. So build on the right man. Secondly, build with the right materials. Third, build in the right manner. And lastly, build for the right motive. Build for the right motive. As we're working together on this side of eternity, as we're waiting for the day to come, we need to build with the right motive and in a righteous way. These verses remind us that in the Old Testament temple, that was where God's spirit dwelt, right? But now, for those of us who are followers of of Jesus Christ, amazingly, God's spirit dwells not in a place, but in people. And if you're a follower of Christ, God's spirit dwells within you. Verse 17 is is a bit of a warning, but it's also an encouragement. The, The warning is about the character required for being that holy temple, but also it's an encouragement in the responsibility of being a keeper of that temple, a keeper of the temple. This is about building something bigger than ourselves, right? This is about building the kingdom and seeing it expand, which of course will outlast our lives and into eternity. Have you ever realized that your faith, your family, your church family, all of those areas, all of them, they all belong to God. And they don't belong to us. That God's desires and his plans for the next five years of Chevrolet Baptist Church, or for the next 15 years, or 50 years for that matter, of your faith, your family, your church family, Those are far more important. God's desires are far more important than our own personal preferences. And these verses say that if a a person damages others by overly desiring personal preferences that eventually provoke provoke, uh, discord and destruction, then God promises to punish that person with rigorous discipline and quite possibly the destruction of that person's soul. Again, Calvin says this, For since God has consecrated them as a temple for himself, at the same time, he has appointed them as keepers of his temple. For every single believer is a living stone for the erecting of God's building. And so verses 16 and verse 17 cause us to examine ourselves, right? And and, and implicitly, we have to ask the question, am I building on the foundation of Christ in a constructive way, or am I building on the foundation of Christ in a destructive way? Am I keeping in step with the Spirit, or am I striving against the Spirit? Ask yourself, due to your personal preferences, is there anything I have done to tear down 
this temple of God? Or maybe you can even think positively, what can I do in the near future to be a keeper of this temple that is the local church? Will you choose to be destructive or will you choose to be constructive in the lives of others to the glory of God? In every single area of our life where we're seeking to build, the axiom of we being greater than me is essential for building with the right motive. We need more of he, less of me. We need less of I, more of us. We need more of John 3.30, right? He must increase, I must decrease. Back in Barcelona, 141 years after that first stone was laid, Antony Gaudi's work remains incomplete, and that basilica of the Holy Family stands even today as the longest-running active construction project on the face of the earth. Since his death, generations of architects and thousands of engineers have labored together to accomplish Gaudi's singular vision and finish his magnum opus. And incredibly, it wasn't until 2019 that the city of Barcelona officially granted a construction permit for the actual completion of this gigantic basilica. And it's supposed to be completed by 2026, even though Gaudi first applied for that permit in 1885. It's like, you thought getting a permit from PG County was bad? Like, <laughs> Barcelona, like costs like $5 million, right? It's crazy. But before his death, Gaudi was, was uh, quoted as saying this, there is no reason to regret that I cannot finish this church. I will grow old, but others will come after me. But what must always be conserved is the spirit of the work, but its life has to depend on the generations it is handed down to and with whom it lives and is incarnated. Pretty profound words. God, he was building something beyond his own life. And so we also are doing the same. You think about what Jesus communicated to his disciples. He, he communicated a twofold promise, right? He said to his disciples, I will build my church. Promise number one. And promise number two was this. The gates of hell, they will not prevail against it. And if the Lord tarries, the work of our building, uh, of building the church will far outlast our lifetimes. We will grow old and others will come after us. The generations that this work is handed down to depends on the one who was incarnated and who lives even now. And what must always be conserved is the spirit of the work. Or that is to say, the spirit who does the work. And as you begin your fifth year in your life together as a church, the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, remember this, it's not about the workers it is all about the work that he has established for us until he returns. And what we work for in expanding his kingdom is determined by how we will build together. And who we work for and the ways in which we work, the motive, the manner, the materials, may it always point to the man who is the very foundation of our faith. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are both our founder and you have provided for us a foundation. Thank you, God, that you are the grand architect of what you are doing in this world. And not only that, Lord, you are the one who supports and empowers the work itself. So, Lord, we as just lowly workers in your field, in your world, on this building project, Lord, would you encourage us and empower us in this work, Lord. For those of us seeking to work in our personal relationships, Lord, of evangelism, give us opportunities, Lord, to communicate the truth of who you are with boldness. Help us, Father, to love our families well and build into our children, Lord, perhaps the foundations that we had not had laid. And Lord, we do pray for this church. We ask God that you would continue to root it and establish it in love. God, allow this church to be a shining light in this community and help us, Lord, keep our eyes fixed on the foundation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.